Welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond, where we share our experiences of language learning with you, as well as the stories of other Australians and a few international guests who love learning, working with and communicating using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck. And we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today, the Wadawurrung people and the Wurundjeri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. And we have a guest with us today who is a good friend of yours, Penny. She is, and I'm feeling very honoured and and happy to have Erin Tibbetts along for a chat with us today. Welcome, Erin. Thank you, Penny. I'm back. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! And We're so happy to have you with us. So, Erin, we have known each other for a long time and, gosh, if I add up the years, I think we'd be almost pushing like a quarter of a century if, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we are, now, we are now that old, Penny, yes, 25 years, 25 years. So, and Beck's like freaking out because she's not much older than that. So. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> well, now I'm intrigued because I want to know how you two met each other and yes. how long this friendship has been, um, how long this friendship has been in the works. Erin, <laughs> take it from here. Tell us, like, well, first of all, welcome. But, yes, do you want to tell everyone how we met? And then that might lead into a little bit about your background and your kind of why you're here on Language Chats, why you're interested in languages. Absolutely. Well, um, we basically met because of language. So um, Penny and I were both children of um, expat families um, moving around the world. Um, I grew up in New Zealand um, and when I was in my early teens, my family moved um, to the Middle East and then they moved through Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia, um, which was where Penny and I met. Our our families were living around the corner from each other in Vietnam. Um, We were both... um, just finished school about to go off to uni um, and uh, our mothers introduced us one day after um, some kind of expat mother event <laughs> um, playing cards together at a fancy hotel um, and I think we realized sort of from the day that we met that we had quite a lot in common but mostly was that we were um, loving spending time in Vietnam um, and that we wanted to explore more and learn more um, so we ended up Um, studying Vietnamese together at the university in uh, Ho Chi Minh City um, and teaching a little bit of English on the side at the end as well. Um, Yeah, and that's sort of kept our friendship going for all of these years. I stalked Penny and her family uh, when they moved back to Melbourne a few years later um, uh, and I've ended up here too now, um, which is, is lovely. Yeah, one of my longest friendships. It's been really, really wonderful. Oh, lovely. That's so good. Penny, is is Erin then potentially your oldest language friend? Like your oldest language buddy? (gasps) Well, when you put it like that, yes. Yes. Well done. I hadn't thought of it like that before. Yay. (laughs) Love all the language-loving friends in our lives. (laughs) I know. I know. And it's nice that we've ended up in the same city state as well after all these years too. So I know that you mentioned in your intro that you were born and and raised or spent, you know, your childhood, early childhood years in New Zealand, but that Australia has been home for a little while as well. Um, And that you've lived all around the world. And do people constantly, or have they eased off a little bit, ask you about your accent? Because... (laughs) It's one of the defining things about you, isn't it? That you've got this amazing accent and it's, it's such a like a meld of all these different experiences. 
if, if an accent could ever be a chameleon, it would be me. Yes. Um, no, it's very tricky. It gets impacted by how tired I am. Um, uh, how many glasses of wine I've had, who I've been talking to. So, um, yes, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, but then I went to some British curriculum schools, um, in the Middle East and, um, then I ended up at boarding school in England. I went to university in Scotland. I did a linguistics degree in Edinburgh. Um, and then I came to Australia in my early 20s. So next month I will have been here for 20 years. Um, uh, not long after I came, I um, enrolled to do a Master of Speech Pathology in Melbourne. Um, so I've been a speechy for a long time. And I think that's kind of helped me uh, hide my accent a little bit. But um yeah, it really does flare up quite a lot. All I need is one TV show um, from New Zealand or um, a couple of uh, yeah, crime podcasts with a really um, posh English accent and and I'm gone for days. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit tricky, um, but uh, I'm well aware that it, it yeah, can sound all over the place sometimes, which is a speech you sometimes isn't ideal. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, I love how you describe it as being like a chameleon with your with your accent. And I think that actually it's quite a skill. Um, I think there'd probably be lots of people out there and especially among people who are learning languages who would love to be able to, um, I guess, adjust their accents as they are learning different languages um, and be able to replicate sounds that they hear. Um, But it sounds like you must be quite good at that. Sort of having oh, look, I think so, except that I never quite fit in everywhere I go. When I go back to New Zealand, people are like, you're not from here. And then my phone number over here in Australia has a six and a seven in it. And so when, whenever I have to give my phone number, you know, they're like, you're not from here. <laughs> so, but yeah, I do. Um, I think you're right, Beck. I love that. And um, I would love to know what my accent sounds like when I do speak other languages, um, whether, um, you know, I, I mostly learned French um, when I was at school in England. So I I suspect I probably speak it with a very proper English accent when I speak French. Um, but uh, my Italian that I've been learning here through my kids probably, I don't know, maybe that's got an Aussie accent. I, yeah, I'd love to to get some feedback on how it actually sounds to, to native speakers. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, that was going to be mm. this question was about mm. your kind of language learning and where you went to after your Vietnamese experience. Did you go on to study languages at uni or was the focus kind of more exclusively on linguistics and the, the science behind language? Um, no, I was able to study um, a couple of languages at uni as well. The way um, the the Master of Linguistics was structured is that you do um, several subjects alongside. It's a four-year degree, so you've sort of got um, plenty of time on your hands. Um, so I um, spent some time studying Italian. I spent a couple of years studying Arabic, which was something that I'd sort of started when we were at school um, in Kuwait um, in the mid-90s. Um and um, then the last two years I spent doing my honours in linguistics, um, which we, you know, were really lucky to be able to touch on structures of languages and um, some of the phonology of other languages as well. I, I learnt little bits about Welsh and about Finnish and about Russian and Sicilian. And, um, yeah, it was a great, it was like a real smorgasbord of, of all the languages, actually, um, which was just lovely. Um, and then... Later, when I came to Melbourne, um, I did a few courses in Auslan, um, which was really good. Unfortunately, my 
Auslan career was hampered by a skiing accident where I um, tore the ligaments in both of my thumbs and I spent three months in full hand casts. So um, that that wasn't very helpful for Auslan, not being able to move your hands or your fingers um, kind of, yeah, got in the way. Um, And then things have kind of slowed down a little bit. So um, I have two kids um, at school. We live in the inner north of Melbourne where Italian is um, the language that comes through primary school. So it's been kind of fun learning alongside them, picking up what I remember and then trying to modify my my French to fit into an Italian um, model. But, um, yeah, I feel really lucky in Melbourne to still hear lots of languages around me. Um, you know, I love hearing um, the older generation Italians uh, in Brunswick and in Carlton just talking over coffee and cafe um, and um, we're going to talk a bit more about my job in a minute too I think and you know that's been a wonderful opportunity to come across people who um, speak English as a second or a third or a fourth language um, and you know to spend some time with them learning about their language and their culture too. That's awesome so when you were studying and you were kind of in this linguistics zone what did you imagine you were going to do next did you have a career plan or something that you were kind of no towards? no I had no plan <laughs> I had no plan no plan I um uh, I um I had a feeling that maybe I was going to move into academic life. Linguistics um, itself as a degree, um, not a a huge amount of um, jobs that you can kind of springboard into, but um, there was an amazing group of academics working at the uni and I really enjoyed the time that I got to spend with them. Um, But as it got towards the end of of our time, there was a group, there was about 22 of us during the honours and... um, we, I think we all sort of came to the same conclusion that we needed to know where we were going next. Um, and the majority of us, I'd say 85 90% ended up um, moving on to do another qualification to go into speech. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, it was quite a natural sort of progression, really, that taking the clinical linguistic side of things um, and then moving into to a speech degree. Um, and I sort of took that extra step by moving countries and doing it over here. Um, which was also really interesting because I was able to join one of the early cohorts for the Master of Speech Pathology at La Trobe. Um, Again, a really small group. There was 24 of us to start with. Um, And relatively few of that group came from a linguistic background. So um, having left a linguistics degree where we all kind of went into speech, I came into speech and... um, my friends and and the cohort, um, you know, we had high school teachers, we had primary teachers, we had someone who'd done a, um, a business degree. Um, one of my best friends from the group um, had a, a really strong background in drama, which she still keeps up today. Um, so there was kind of this um, real amalgamation of different people who all came together to study speech, um, which was fascinating and, and such a great group of people to learn with we all had such different backgrounds and different skills it was great I think that's really really interesting and fascinating as you say to hear about all of the different kinds of people who decided to enter into a career (laughs) to study speech pathology um we have previously on this podcast interviewed some another speech pathologist who's also Melbourne based, um, who has a, a, again a different a different story and a different background. And I don't think I even 
like if I look back now to when I was at school, I don't think I knew what speech pathology was. Um, and I certainly didn't know that it was like a career path. Um, but I can really see now, having listened to quite, and, and met quite a few different speeches, um, that the, the link between language and all of the ways that it is used in life. So, you know, when you say that there were some teachers who came in, I'm sure that like, you know, working with students and seeing their language develop over time must be really interesting. Um, the other speech pathologist who we've interviewed on this podcast, we'll put a link in the show notes to that episode, um, was um, a lovely woman called Sarah and she was an, a classically trained opera singer um, before kind of entering into speech pathology. Um, you know, people who've done theatre and drama and worked on projection of voice, um, all of those things I'm like, wow, it makes so much sense. Like it kind of, it just feels very, very connected and actually one of the things that binds all of, all of that together is language. Absolutely. And, um, you know, to be part of that, but then to come out the other side as well, I still catch up regularly with um, half a dozen um speeches from my cohort and we all work in different parts of speech pathology now and I've had a big shift in my career this year um I when I graduated um I decided I didn't want to work with kids um a lot of speeches do work with kids but um I have really um long legs that I just couldn't get under the little tables um, and, the, and the tiny chairs, just they were no good for me. Um, so I, I worked with adults. I've worked in um, public hospitals um, in Melbourne for 16 years. Um, and I think the one thing I didn't know about speech pathology before I went into it is a, a big part of it actually isn't about speech and language and about communication. It's about swallowing. Um, we use a lot of the same muscles to swallow that we do to speak. Um, and so the idea of being able to get food and drink and, you know, your saliva down safely falls into the speechy's lap. So for pretty much all of my career up until this year, so 16 years, um, that was a really big part of what I did was helping people eat and drink safely and comfortably, um, you know, regardless what had happened to them. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I, I shifted jobs earlier this year was that I really wanted to get back to my love of communication and of language um, and I was really fortunate to um, be able to take on a role where, where that is what I do now. Um, I really enjoyed my time in hospitals. I worked uh, in inpatients and in outpatients. I worked in a really specialist service. I worked with some really um, sort of specific caseloads that were really important to me um, that I'd spent a lot of time studying and that I really enjoyed you know the little role that I had to play in helping them um, but I was really ready to move on and to um, get back to yeah my my speechy roots of you know being interested in communication and language um, so that's been really exciting for me um, yeah, who would have thought, you know, in your early 40s, you can make such a, a big shift and a big jump um, sort of sideways in a career and um, still feel like you have enough knowledge to um, to get the job done, but you, you're still learning. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying how much learning I get to do uh, in my new role at the moment. Um, we'll talk about your new role in a sec, but mm. it, what, mm. what I'm getting the sense of, and um, I think you, you kind of, bring it all together really well is that there's so many aspects to being a speechy. There's just so many different avenues that a speech pathologist might take or that a patient might need to see a speech pathologist for. When yeah. you're kind of, I guess, 
doing your your studies and and having your placements and getting that experience are you is it all kind of just all this unknown is it do you kind of go oh is that what a speech he does oh do they do that too oh and absolutely that was all of us in the first week was like swallowing what do you mean swallowing (laughs) how 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 is that even a problem why would someone need their swallowing fixed and really is that going to be me yeah it was huge Um, impact of of disease and accidents and I think as lay people Beck maybe maybe you're, you're different but for me I always thought of especially before kind of getting to know what your job was a bit better that a speech pathologist might help someone with with a speech issue and that was it like yep or lisps people you'd tell someone that you're a speech pathologist and they think that you fix kids lisps or stutters you know they tell you I started when I was a kid and I I saw a speechy which is certainly a big part of what we do but um the the realm of the speechy so we talk about language um and that language is uh, expressive language so the words that we choose the words that we get out the order that we put them in um it's also language comprehension so how we take in the language that we hear and how we process it um a really big part of my work in hospitals has been around speech so the, the system the motor system that's that comes from you taking your breath in and then slowly releasing your breath up over your vocal cords shaping it through your um your throat and your mouth and using your tongue and your teeth and your lips to make sounds um voice is a really big part, which I know, um, Sarah, the speech you had uh, on before, um, talked a lot about her work in voice, um, which is a huge, really important part of speech pathology. Um, We also do a lot of work with fluency. So um, people who have um, a stutter, whether it's children or adults, um, again, it's a really specialist area in speech pathology. Um, and then we do a little bit of work around hearing and cognition as well. Um, both of those kind of overlap with other professions. Um, but yeah, and then and then swallowing, which is the the other really big one. Um, but for me, I was really always interested in the speech and the language part. But you're right, Penny. It was you know kind of um, every week. Uh, we were, you know, working on on new um, problems and new things that that we'd never heard of. And and I still, I graduated and was still learning um, every day. My my specialty was working with people with progressive neurological diseases. So I worked with people with motor neuron disease and Huntington's disease um, and multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. Um, that was something that I was really interested in from when I was at uni. I did um, my research in that over the two years, and so I was really lucky to. Um, be able to kind of um, progress into a role where I could specialise in that for, for 10 years. Um, but, you know, um, my speechy friends uh, work in special schools, they work in primary schools, they work in private practice. Um, I have friends who work in, you know, audiology clinics, Um yeah, uh, the NDIS, you know, that's been um, a really big um, player in the, in the role for speeches and for allied health in the last few years um, and the way that kind of community health uh, landscape has changed with funding for the NDIS, that's been pretty huge. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of roles out there for speeches, which is probably good because there's quite a few speech pathology courses out now. Um, and, but I think allied health in general um, is a a great way to, you know, learn about 
anatomy and biology and um, but to be able to still sort of be able to connect with people yeah do you think as speech pathologists do you think that there is a kind of that innate ability just because of your training and studies to be able to form different sounds and make different words and be a really good language speaker because you've had all this kind of practice learning about tongue placement and lips and teeth and all this kind of wacky stuff that goes on in your mouth. Like I'm just thinking, you know, Vietnamese (laughs) is a really good example of a really tricky language, Um, some really different sounds for an English speaker to be able to have to put together with lips and tongues. Do you think... um, your studies and your studies of your colleagues has had an impact on your own language learning. I I actually think my linguistic my linguistics degree, ironically she said stuttering that word out, <laughs> um, not clearly. I think I think my linguistics degree had um, a lot more help than that. Um, I think oh, I really don't know. I would I was been thinking about this before I came on tonight. The whole chicken and the egg. You know, was I always a speechy in my head before I became a speechy, or you know, was it the other interest in language and reading and people and culture that sort of brought me around this way? Um, I know, you know, having supervised a lot of students in my time, there are some people who. The majority of people who are on the speech course are there because they love communicating and because they want to break down the barriers for people who have communication impairments. Um, but every now and then you get sort of some people who just, it's really rare, but who just don't quite get it. And and probably what that might be is that they're actually just not in the right part of speech pathology and maybe they just need to, you know, find their little niche part. Um, but, yeah, I would love to know, yeah. Pen. I really would. Um but uh, for me, it was certainly the linguistics um, and all the phonetic training that we had to do. I used to have to um, uh, do dictation in the International Phonetic Alphabet. Um, but the IPA you know, at Edinburgh Uni, we had oh yeah. yes, we had we had Americans, we had Canadians, we had some incredibly broad Glaswegian accents. So um, it was a great way for me to learn the IPA because I got every single vowel under the sun thrown at me. Um, yeah, it was it was fascinating. That's really um, impressive. Yeah. We actually were just talking about dictation briefly in our last episode. Um, so for anybody who has listened to the last episode, we were talking all about listening. Um, Penny mentioned dictation <laughs> and I was saying how it didn't play a big part in any of the languages that I have studied, but I know that you were saying that it was, it was quite an important exercise um, for learning Mandarin Chinese. Yeah, I, I, I th- it could be a mixture of traditional learning practices in that kind of environment as well as a really good way to make sure you're you're drilling the tones and what you can hear is actually what you think you can hear. Um, Same with Vietnamese as well, Um, although I do have very lots of memories about dictation in Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) I I also love the idea, sorry, to go back to what you were saying, Erin, like IPA or the International Phonetic Alphabet. Um, So I guess a lot of people out there probably recognize IPA. They've probably seen it on the internet or seen it in a dictionary at some point in time as the the kind of letters that sort of explain how the word is supposed to be pronounced. But of course, what we don't think about very often is that in a language like English, where there are many different speakers of English all around the world, who we are all comprehensible to each other. Um, However, our accents can differ very greatly um as you as you said before you can have americans you know 
British accents and the, the range of accents that sit within that, of course, same in America, you know, North America too. Um, mm. And then you can have like a very broad kind of Glaswegian accent compared to, I don't know, a, a Welsh accent or an Australian accent or a New Zealand accent. And although in English the way we write that is the same, so like everybody could say the same written sentence, but IPA allows for the distinction of how those sound different, but in a written way. That yep. makes sense, which I think yep. is so cool. <laughs> it's it's so cool. It's like a super secret code. If you can read IPA, you can actually come up with any accent. You know, I I can't do a Glaswegian accent off the bat, but if I'm if I'm reading what I've written in an IPA um, text, um, yeah, I can I can sound Glaswegian. It's pretty cool. Oh, that is so cool. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Not, not particularly useful in daily life, but it's cool. <laughs> but a cool party trick, right? <laughs> oh, it's such a good party trick, yes. yes. Better than my other party trick, which is that I can name all 50 American states in alphabetical order. Oh, well, that's cool too. <laughs> yeah, another great party trick. I think we all need to do trivia together or something because we could be like a stellar trivia team. <laughs> we need to have more parties maybe. <laughs> now, you touched on before your new role that you started this year and I know that it's you know it's a move away from from health and from the hospital system what can you tell us about what you're working on now so I'm still a certified practicing speech pathologist, which is ironically quite a mouthful to say. Um, but my official role is I'm working as an intermediary for the Department of Justice and Community Safety. Um, so I basically work to facilitate communication in the justice system. So that involves sitting in um police interviews uh, with vulnerable witnesses um, and uh, in the court um system as well um, with witnesses when we talk about vulnerable witnesses it's um, young people under the age of 18 and adults who have the legal system uses the term cognitive impairment but that's a really broad kind of umbrella term which includes people who have a communication impairment um, for some reason so yeah that's been my job this year which has been um Really interesting, really different, um, really different to hospital work. Um, yeah, and challenging because I've had um, a lot of new learning um, to take on board. Um, yeah, it's been, but it's been fascinating. And like I said before, it sort of brought me back to this sort of really pure kind of um, communication language um, sort of sense of, of being a speechy which has been and really that nice. connecting with people and having that impact directly yeah. I mean of course you were having that yeah. in your previous role as well but you can see it you know play out in real life in front of you can't you yeah you can and, and what was really tricky in hospital was that um people who had difficulty swallowing that was always a higher medical priority than someone who had issues with their communication so particularly if you work in an acute hospital um where people aren't in there for a very long time um you don't often have the luxury of time to do a lot of work um with them when they had a communication impairment whereas now that's purely what i do um i you know meet with witnesses i assess their communication figure out what kind of um things the system needs to do to um to work around um whatever might be impacting way, the way that they get their message out and the way that they take messages in how interesting are you able to um give us like not obviously not any like sp- 
direct examples because for all sorts of reasons, I'm sure you can't do that. But could you give us like a, a kind of a general example of a situation and how you can, how you assist? Um, yeah, absolutely. So the um, people that I work with um, are referred to our service. Um, sometimes it's by a support worker, uh, could be by a family member or by the police informant who's kind of been involved in whatever might have been happening happening for them um we touch base with them they could be um a young person maybe a teenager who's had a a learning disorder um diagnosed or undiagnosed they might have um, adhd they could have an auditory processing disorder where they don't have any difficulty hearing but they have difficulty processing what they're hearing Um, they might have a developmental disorder um Uh, physical disabilities Um, they may use a communication device Um, they may you know not use speech um, and have a device or something else that talks for them that they control to speak for them Um, they could have issues with their mental health um, a history of trauma um, which can have a massive impact on how someone communicates Um, or there's lots of other kind of personal factors that can um impact how someone communicates without them and necessarily having a diagnosis um you know they could have um yeah have had educational issues or um things that have sort of put them at disadvantage in terms of being able to communicate um and the role uh, of an intermediary is relatively new in victoria it's been around for for a few years but the idea is that um sort of working within there's a lot of um procedural and uh, legislative requirements for how witnesses participate um in police interviews and in the court system um and a lot of the, a lot of those are um, really archaic you know they're from um laws that came about hundreds of years ago and practices that were um every day hundreds of years ago um and are very traditional so um the the practice as it is now um you know looking at all the things that we've learned about humans and people and brains in in, in all of those hundreds of years um some of that system is still trying to catch up um and in, until this this intermediary role came in as a, as a new officer of the court um there was no obligation for witnesses to be spoken to any differently so um you know you could have a a seven-year-old child um, with uh, ADHD um, trying to give evidence to a lawyer, um, you know, who's asking questions like, is it true, tell me if it's not true, that on Wednesday last week you were at the park. I, uh, is, that, is that true? I'm, I'm not sure that that was true. Are you really sure that you were there? Um, and, you know, uh, these really super long Questions with um, back and forth and um, kind of no uh, obligation to make things easier for for people, uh, whether it was kids or um, vulnerable adults. Um, so the, the role of the intermediary is to kind of come in and see, um, you know, what this person's communication is like and, and what the system can do to modify um, the way that it works to allow them to give their best evidence. You know, um, these people um, have had things happen to them. Uh, it's really important that they're able to talk about it uh, in the easiest um, and most reliable way. Uh, and our role is to help um, 
police when they're doing their interviews um, and then lawyers and magistrates in the court um, to, to find ways to, to help them get their message out. So whether that's, you know, making sure that witnesses have extra processing time, you know, literally you need to count six seconds after your question to wait for a response, um, making sure that there's, you know, questions with no double negative, mm. questions that don't have tags on the end. You know, when you say you were at the park yesterday, weren't you? Adding the weren't you on the end can be a bit confusing. Um, thinking about, you know, using passive questions and non-literal languages, using lots of idioms and metaphors, which is, you know, part of the really kind of floral language that that is legalese, you know, and is really natural um, to the way that... Um, they speak in courtrooms and it's not um, to say that uh, they're doing it deliberately or they're, you know, they're trying to, to make it difficult, but it's just the way that the, um, that they've been taught and, and the way that, that it works. So um, it's kind of exciting to be, you know, a little cog in the, in the wheel, in the machine um, that helps to sort of break down participation barriers for people um, and increases access to justice for people who have um, complex communication needs. Um, so getting back to what you said, Beck, yeah, so it could be um, a young person with a developmental disorder. It could be an older person with a brain injury, you know, someone who has had a stroke um, and they might have a language impairment to the point where um, they have difficulty processing um, two or three stage questions um uh, but give them a one-stage question and, and they're okay um they may have difficulty getting their message out um they may use a communication device or um it may take them a lot longer they may need to use single words um but either way the system needs to be able to support that and to support their needs so that they can get their message out as part of your role then do you have the opportunity to brief lawyers and and police prior to them having full yeah, run that's on the, the idea yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so we um when witnesses um go into their police interviews um it, it's still a, a small um project the intermediary roles so it's not at every police station and it's only for a certain um type of incident uh it's not every kind of incident but um yeah so anyone who's under 18 or is a vulnerable adult um the idea is that you go in and you have a, a chance to sort of have a quick chat to the witness um and you know i have been working as a speechy for 16 years and i um have a lot of issues with imposter syndrome and i don't always think that i know what i'm talking about but you know give me five minutes with someone and i'm, I'm pretty good at figuring out how much they can take in how they're getting things out what we need to do to support them best so yeah i usually get five ten minutes um and then i get a quick chat to the um the detective um to make some suggestions to them about their interviews um again the the way that they ask their question is really um you know steeped in tradition and um legalities as well they're, they're not meant to ask closed questions it's all meant to be super open you know tell me everything about why you've come here today which is a huge question you know to to think about trying to describe something that's happened to you you could get a forward answer or you could as i have had had someone talk for two hours you know um just from one question um 
So, yeah, so we get the chance to do that before the interview, but um, before the court, it's much, much, much more formal. So, um, you know, I get to spend anywhere between 15 minutes to two, two and a half hours with a witness. Um, I, I write a really lovely long report with lots of recommendations. Um, we have a meeting um, with the judge, the magistrate, the lawyers, and myself um, to talk about recommendations and sort of. Um, agree to how we move forward with them, you know, finding um, a happy ground where everyone understands what the recommendations are and, and negotiating, you know, um, how we actually put them into practice. Um, and then about a week, 10 days after that, we actually have the proper hearing where um, we're all following the rules and I mostly get to sit nice and quietly next to my witness and just raise my hand um, if, if I think something needs to be um uh, reworded or you know rephrased just to sort of go alongside the rules that we'd established in the hearing um, beforehand so um, yeah it's it's a lovely opportunity to be able to have some influence um, and it's been really exciting you know change is hard and um I'm not a person who always feels very comfortable sort of coming into situations, telling people that they need to change what they're doing. That's not really my thing. Um, you know, so to come in and, and, and meet two, you know, really learned, high-functioning professionals and say, look, you can't ask a double negative question. You're like, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but and and I was I was really nervous. I'm still really nervous. But you know the feedback that you get and the the collaboration that you get to have with these incredibly learned professionals um, is really wonderful. Because at the end of the day, we all have the same kind of goal, um, which is for the witness to be able to communicate effectively. Um, and reliably and um yeah it's been really wonderful um watching them learn and um helping them learn so as a as a side my other role i do some training at the police academy i've been doing that for a long time a dozen years maybe um where we do some role plays with the detectives as they're um, graduating to be able to do these special interviews um so we do role plays with clients with real clients who have real communication impairments um, and we spend the day supporting the detectives to do these interviews um, and to sort of do some really neat kind of language tasks with the clients um, to figure out what's going on for them and, and what works in terms of their interviews and rapport building and stuff. So um, that is a really lovely thing to watch as well, you know, um, detectives who um really aren't sure how they feel about communicating with someone with a communication impairment at the beginning of the day to um, realising that a lot of what I say and what I ask them to do is actually really natural. Um, people, and I think that's the, one of the reasons that I love being a speechy is that communication is so intuitive, it's so innate, it's so quick, it's so natural, we don't even think about it. Um, and you know what you were saying before, Beck, about um, English speakers, we all have different accents. We don't even think about it. We don't stop to say, ah, oh, hang on, you are Scottish. I need to figure out what your vowels mean. We just kind of listen a little bit closer and um, our ears tune into it, you know, and, and after you're listening to it for a little while, it becomes more natural for you. And um, I, I often say to 
you know, to clients at the hospital, to people that I teach and that I support. Um, sometimes it's not really rocket science. My job is just kind of actually verbalising things that you already do. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I, I really love it. It's, it's really natural. Um, but communication is its so important. Um, it's such a big part of who we are. And I used to find it really challenging. I worked in emergency, emergency departments at um, a few different hospitals and you'd have a, a person who would have come in um, and had, you know, um, for example, a stroke. They come in and, you know, half of their body isn't working. Um, everyone's a bit confused. There's family who are there really distressed. Um, and the first thing they always say is, well, you know, when's he going to walk again? Why can't he walk? He can't use his arm. You know, why can't he walk? And the person's there and they can't speak because the stroke that they've had has impacted the language part of their brain. And you watch and the physio comes and, you know, talks to them. And, and a week later, they've got some movement back in their leg, which is great, and they're walking again. And then the family sort of say, hang on, he can't talk. No, no, he needs to talk. We don't care if the legs don't work. He needs to be able to talk, you know. Talking is who he is. How can how can he not talk? And um, it's very arrogant as a speechy, but it is always really nice when people suddenly realise how important the communication aspect of it actually is, you know, being able to read stories to your kids, being able to tell your family members that you love them, um, you know, being able to do a podcast with three different people in, in three different parts of the same city, you know, um, being able to email someone on the other side of the world um, at the, you know, same time that they can read it. Communication is just so huge and we are so lucky to be able to do it. Um, but it doesn't take much for it to, to go wrong, you know. Um, one in eight people in Australia live with a communication impairment and, um, and quite a significant amount of those are, are language-based impairments, um, often from a stroke or from some kind of acquired brain injury. Um, so it's, yeah, but I think it's certainly something that we take for granted. Um, I think until, you know, it becomes part of your life, whether it's yourself or someone that you know or someone that you work with who has a, a change to the way that they can communicate, um, we kind of get to live in this blissful blissful state where um you know, we just are so instinctive and so immediate in the way that we interact with each other. It's quite clever. Our brains are quite amazing, really. They really are. And mm. I love that. I feel like you have just summed up all of the beauty of communication in like five minutes, Erin. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can come again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's been such a great chat. Thank you so much for giving up your time and, and coming to talk to us on Language Chats. We've really appreciated it. Oh, it's just been lovely. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have you with us and sharing your experiences as well as your your like your professional and personal experiences with us. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that um, anyone listening to this as well will have enjoyed it too. But please do, if you have listened to this episode and you're interested in what Erin's been talking about, if, if any of this rings a bell with you and and you feel like this is something that you're interested in, tell us. Um, we always love to hear from you. We love your questions. Erin, um, is, is there a way that anyone can get in touch with you if you would like to answer some questions? 
Oh, look, me being the professional that I am, I have no website. Um, I have a terrible <laughs> social media, which is mostly just photos of my cats. Um, but no, I'm, I, I, I would love to, um, you know, provide any mentorship or any advice. I'm happy for, you know, for anyone to contact the podcast if you like, whether it's to talk about being a speechy or being an intermediary or just, you know, being someone with a chameleon accent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. Love to chat. That's what Wonderful. I do. Okay. Well, if you do have any questions for Erin or for us or, or for, the, for the group, for everybody, for the podcast, um, you can find us in all of the usual internet places, I suppose. Um, you can find us on our website. We are at languagelovers.com.au. Um, you can also find us on social media. Um, our, we have a Facebook community, a Facebook group called the Language Lovers AU Community, and that's where we, um, I guess, interact with other people who are also interested in languages in Australia um, and you can also find us on Instagram at languagelovers.au and if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast please do so and then you won't miss all our other episodes that come out fortnightly um, and if there is an aspiring speechy or someone in your life you think might benefit from listening to this great chat with Erin please forward the episode to them as well and thanks again Erin and we will catch you in another fortnight Cheers, guys. Bye.